Welcome to episode 343 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was recorded on Tuesday, 21st of November, 2023. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Turn Bicycles. The good people at Turn are committed to building bikes that are useful enough to ride every day and dependable enough to carry the people you love. In other words, they make the kind of bikes that they want to ride. Turn has e-bikes for every type of rider, whether you're commuting, taking your kids to school, or even carrying another adult. Visit www.turnbicycles.com, that's T-E-R-N, bicycles.com, to learn more. In the last episode, I said this show would be an interview with Commute of Germany. But then an Australian angle intervened. Philip and Irene McAleese of CSENS, the Northern Irish Bike Lights and Data Data Company, are upping sticks and moving down under. I'm Carlton Reed, and regular listeners will know that Philip and Irene have been on the show multiple times. So it's only fitting that I invited them for a wee chat before they depart at the beginning of December. So what what convinced you to exchange the rain of Northern Ireland for the sunshine of Brisbane? Oh, well, really a mixture of things. Obviously, you know, I'm Australian. I've been away now for 20 years next in April of next year or coming up to 20 years. Um, and I think it was actually when I was back home um, last year, my, my dad wasn't well and I went back um, for that. Um, but it just sort of, I don't know, something just sort of um, in my mind just thought I, I wanted to be back, I wanted to be closer to my family. But also we were really impressed with um, what's happening in Australia. It seems to be sort of post-COVID, there's a lot of energy around my active travel. There's a lot going in in terms of investment. Um, they seem to have more funding pots available for this kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, we, we like the, you know, we liked what's, what's happening, the energy of the, the, um, in Australia at the moment and the, um, you know, the economic potential as well. So yes, yeah. weather is certainly a, a factor, but, mm. um, we do see opportunity to expand CSENSE in the Australian market. Yeah. I'd like to get into that in a, in a, in a bit, cause that's clearly going to be a phenomenal uh, task ahead of you and you can tell me about exactly the, the, the structures you put in place but first of all a, a bit more personal really in that you've clearly you've 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 visited Irene every couple of years is that is that right like to go and see your family and and you know pandemic withstanding yeah. you, you, yeah. you've you kind of you've been there regularly so I'm assuming your kids it's not going to be like totally alien for them they've also seen Australia and 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 what is is in their future yes however i am trying to kind of get across that you know every time we've been back for holidays it's it's the beach it's barbecues it's yeah. social events it's family they have this very rose tinted view of what life in australia would be like so i'm trying to get across it there's actually going to be a lot of grunge stuff as well like you will have to go to school <laughs> <laughs> You will still need to do homework. Yeah. Um, so, 
you know, um, yes, I, I think that I think they they are excited. But yeah, I mean, as with anywhere you live, you make the best of where you are. And I've actually really enjoyed everywhere I've lived. I've lived in Northern Ireland for eleven years. I've lived in Singapore. I've lived in London. Um, I really, you know, I, I always think that you can make the best of wherever you are and it's very much about your attitude and also just being around good people. So how old are your kids? Our kids, well, we have uh, our youngest is actually turning 12 this week and our eldest is 14. So part of the reason of, I guess, wanting to go now is to get them into the school for the get them a little bit embedded into the school before they get too senior mm. um, and start to get into the later years. So yeah, I guess in an ideal world, we might have liked another a year or two to, to sort of in, um, um, you know, prepare for the move. But really once the decision was made, we, we ripped the Band-Aid off quickly um, and decided to, to do mm. it. And Philip, so talk, talk to me about this. So, I mean, you, you know, Irene's obviously spent... 20 years away from Australia. Is this like a quid pro quo thing? You know, you've spent 20 years away. All right, let's go and spend 20 years in Australia. H- how, have you, how have you negotiated this as, <laughs> as, as part of your, your marriage kind of contract? Yeah, so we were living in Singapore uh, and obviously we had to make the decision between Northern Ireland and Australia when we decided we wanted a bit more family support. Um, my family are all quite local to where we are here. Um, whereas Irene's family were dispersed around Australia, uh, which is a really, really uh, unfathomably mm-hmm. big mm-hmm. place for European. And um, so it made sense to come here first. We always said that we would retire in Australia. Mm. Um, we're, we're just going a, a little bit sooner than we expected, um, just to fit in really with the equivalent of GCSEs A-levels and not disturbing schooling too much. Um, and, and plus, I, I'm really excited about it. I mean, there's a lot of opportunity for us down there. Um, and you know, some of our bigger biggest projects are happening right there at the moment, and so it'll be really good to go down um, and to be there to be able to accelerate and leverage um, all of that goodwill we have already. So, is that project the one that you're doing with uh, Victoria's TAC Transport Accident Commission, the Light Insight trial? Is it that one? Yes, it's actually an extension of that trial. So, that trial wrapped up um, last year. Um, but we were delighted that they chose to extend the project, working directly with TAC. Um, and now we're working with uh, the first LGA, local government authority, um, called Surf Coast, um, who are just a little bit um, south of uh, Melbourne. Um, they've got some infrastructure going in, and they're very interested in understanding the before and after and seeing what impact and change they can have. Um, they're really interested in community engagement and lots of the great things that our data can really help to um, facilitate and help them do. Um, and that should lead on to projects with other um, LGAs as well. There are uh, a number of them interested in, in talking to the TAC at the moment. Um, and it'll be fantastic to see um, what we can do to help them as well. Because Australia, from, from this side of the, the, the kind of the antipodes, it's always seemed a bit backward in, in cycling in that, you know, certainly Europe, continental Europe, and, and even the UK for a few years, seem to be far in advance of Australia and Australia seemed to be going backwards on active travel. But what you're saying or what, what, what Irene was saying a few seconds ago was maybe that's changing. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing, um, I, I definitely think that there, there is, um, there, it, there does exist in Australia this um, us and them you know, attitude of, of cycling. Um, I mean, it does exist here as well to an extent. 
But um, that's what I was saying, though, Carlton. I think that I, I sense that the attitudes are changing. There's definitely a lot more investment in infrastructure that has gone in, um, it, not only in Melbourne and Sydney, but also in Brisbane, in, in my hometown. I was, was really impressed to see, even in some, even in, uh, you know, there's urban investment uh, in urban areas, but also rail trails, they call them, which are like the greenway investment for tourism and things like this. Um, yeah, it, it's it's really um, it, it has really taken off in in the last few years. I think particularly since COVID, there's been there's been a big uptake. Very, um, we still have a long way to go, um, but I'm seeing that there's a lot more appetite. Um, and I've been speaking with other Australians at the. It was a large contingent of Aussies at the Velo City in Leipzig this year. There was a really active um, um, advocacy groups there, um, the Amy Gillett Foundation and, and We Ride and the Bicycle Network, they're all doing fantastic work. Um, there's, there seems to be you know, the, the likes of the people that we have been engaging with at the Transport Accident Commission and the iMove project. I mean, we work with people on projects around the world and some of the people we're working with there, we really think have great minds and a real appetite for innovation. Um, so yeah, we're really happy to to explore that and see what we can do um, to help push. And how, how much of the this maybe this expansion of interest in active travel? How much of it is perhaps due to climate change? Because again, from the perspective from this side of the antipodes, is certainly the the previous crop of Australian politicians have been all dinosaurs. They were all just totally denied the fact that man made climate change. Uh, is happening at all? I, 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 are the current crop better? Yeah, that I mean, well, I think that the current prime minister has acknowledged that climate change is a thing, so that's that's definitely a start. I think that yeah, there's there's definitely an awareness in Australia now more so than previous years about the need to make change and to do it do it rapidly. Um, so I think that definitely could be could be a factor. Um, I think there was a report actually that came out um, just this week about about the cycling industry and its contribution to the economy. So it was it was really interesting that one of the questions that they asked people as to why they're riding their bike, um, the reason, my, the highest reason was for their own fitness and, and well-being, but one of the second highest reasons I think was about concern for the environment. So it must be playing on people's minds. And then logistically, your business, I mean, let's, let's just, you're not closing your business down. You are operating it as a satellite. So you're, you're going to be opening a sales office in Brisbane and expanding in Australia. Because what, what currently do you have in Australia? Is there anything at all in Australia or do you just sell your products and your, your services there? And that's it. And you do that from the Northern Ireland. Yeah, um, we do exactly as you say. So we're setting up a, a sales office there. Um, all of our projects are uh, have been run and executed really from um, from here. Um, we did visit um, the, the Transport Accident Mission in Melbourne um, and we spent a day with them on our last personal visit to Australia. Um, and we find that to be incredibly useful and really, really rewarding. Um, and so we realised that it was a good opportunity to do a lot more of that. Previously, I've asked this this, this question, and maybe it changes every few months anyway, because you started as a light company, 
And yes, it was a clever light, but it was a light company. And then each time we talk, it's the data data thing uh, with Irene and with you, the different ways of pronouncing it. Um, you seem to be becoming much more of a, a, a data company. Has that accelerated even just in the last you know six months since we last talked? Um, I think we, we've not really changed our focus. I think probably what has changed is that, um, you know, with projects like uh, in Denver and in Australia um, and in Essex, we're seeing real infrastructure changes be put in. So I think we finally got to the point where, um, you know, people's appetite and willingness, and I guess understanding of data um, has advanced to the point where it is now being actively used, uh, which we're super excited about. When you are in Australia in your new sales office, you are selling lights or data? Oh, very much data. Yeah. So, I mean, the lights are, are fantastic. They're really good at a personal level, we think, for helping to make you more visible um, as you ride around, which should hopefully lead to a better riding experience. Um, but ultimately, the, the bigger benefit we can have is around understanding um, the, the greater pull of cycling. So, you know, where is the infrastructure working well and where can we help the cities to understand where it can be improved? Um, and we're starting to look at other things. You know, there's a lot of initiatives going on with things like green waves where, um, you know, they put beacons or transponders on the bikes and allow them to have green traffic lights all the way through the destination. Um, we, we like that idea in principle, but of course, you can't have a, a beacon on every bike. And so it doesn't really provide... Um, you know, a fair experience to everyone. Whereas when we look at our data, we only need a sample of cyclists in order to be able to model, to understand where the bunching of cyclists occurs, where the biggest delays and the highest probabilities are of being stopped at a set of traffic lights. And then through that modeling, we have the city to understand, you know, what, what changes need to be made to traffic phasing to allow for these bunches or groups of cyclists that have naturally formed in the environment. Um, to get collectively um, a green wave all the way through without having to have any additional sensors on the bikes themselves. I mean, Philip's brought up beacons there. I, I wasn't going to bring it up, <laughs> even though you know that I probably was going to. Um, so so, so beacons wa was mentioned at a certain safety conference you were at in, was it in The Hague just recently? And it was, it was, it was Gazella. So it's like somebody from Gazella basically saying cyclists of the future are going to have force fields. Um, uh, you know, this, 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 you know, beaconization program, uh, was it, was it swallowed whole by the audience or was it quite, was there groans when even Gazella are like, seem to have, uh, swallowed the Kool-Aid? Well, I, I would say that it was, you know, this is an academic audience who, um, you know, this is the International Cycling Safety Conference. Um, the, the audience, um, Pridem primarily academics who are focused on research and they like the idea of testing out ideas. I think one of the things that, you know, one of the key things that the audience really noticed straight away was that the Coalition for Safety, I think it's called, the, the organisation which has been set up, didn't have any um, voices on that coalition from the academic world. Um, so that was, I think, the number one point of view. Um, now, he, uh, to be fair, Gazelle did say, well, we would like to invite those voices on now, but it had originally come from being an industry-driven thing. So I think that was the first point of, you know, why are you developing this in isolation without taking on the, the ideas, the insights and, you know, perspectives that the academic um, world could potentially offer 
um, in helping to shape or steer the solution. Um, and there were other also other questions that, that came up about um, why, you know, um, would this give a cyclist a sort of sense of false sense of security that they felt that they were riding in a bubble? I think that was actually the picture on the first slide. There was a, a picture of a cyclist enclosed by this by this bubble of safety um, that, um, you know, and I think there was immediately some reaction to that. Um, and your ears must have been burning, Carlton, because yours truly did put up my hand and say, have you read Carlton's fantastic piece in, in the Forbes about this? You know, I think that there's, you know, that there are some valid points here around equity. Um, but, yeah, there were actually a couple of people in the audience as well that, that, you know, didn't seem opposed to it, seemed, you know, open to it, but wanting to test and validate that actually this could does this work? And I guess that's coming from the researcher point of view, you know, appetite to, to validate or test things without sort of completely ruling it out. And I think that, um, to be fair to Gazelle, they, they acknowledge that there's definitely a lot more work to do to be able to validate if this does actually bring mm. benefit. And it was kind of presented as very much a work in progress I mean, I welcome technology. I'm, I'm, I'm clear. I'm talking to, to to people here who are right the the, the cutting edge of of bicycle uh, technology in 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 data and in 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 digital mm -hmm. diagnostics. So I'm not I'm not against this. But I, I I've got a bikes that sometimes have the the Garmin uh, radar on the back, and you very quickly get used to that, and and you almost mm -hmm. stop looking behind, and you just rely on on your your dashboard to tell you how many cars are coming which is great when you're on that bike but then if you've got like a few bikes which which i have i'm lucky enough to have quite a few bikes you switch to a different bike and you're still in that kind of i'm going to rely on the technology mode and then all of a sudden it's like yeah but you're not on that technological bike anymore you're on a, a, a naked bike all of a sudden so you've got to go back to the old ways so it's it's almost like the, the, the you know self-driving cars if if you have you know, 10 years of sitting in a car and you're not having to touch anything, all of a sudden you have to use, you know, your driving skills. It's just a little atrophied. And it's the same with, 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 with technology. If we start relying on technology on bicycles too much, like the, the Garmin uh, Varia radar, all of a sudden you've lost all of those actually pretty good skills. And that's not even, as you mentioned, equity there. You've got a whole bunch of, you know, 99.9% .9 of the population ain't going to yeah. have this technology. It's for the rich yeah. people will have this technology. And, and why should we sacrifice? Mm. Why should the rich people be protected and, and everybody else not be protected? So there are huge, it's the academics, if, if you're you know, talking about academics, I would quite like there to be some historians, not just yeah. tech academics, but historians yeah. there, social historians you know, his, uh, people, academics who are specialists in yes. in, in genuine equity yeah. to bring all of these perspectives because that's that is uh, from what I can see is totally being ignored. And yeah, they're currently not on the the Coalition for Safety panel at all, so that mm. that perspective has not been brought in, which is a real miss. Yeah. Definitely, something that the audience called out. The other yeah. thing that they also said is, well, how long will this work in the Netherlands? Because you're mm -hmm. detecting bikes, and there's thousands of bikes. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Anyway, Philip, you were going to say something. Yeah, I think it's interesting as well, because if you look at sort of the agenda and who's driving it, um, obviously there's both, you know, car and bicycle companies um, promoting this as an idea. Um, but really, when you look at it, um, at the technologies that they're using and trialing and evaluating, um, it's largely based around car-based systems, V2X. And so a lot of those are mm. by companies like Qualcomm, um, who will be not just in one manufacturer, but will be in multiple cars. And the argument is that you know, because it's in multiple cars, um, it can be upgraded over the air in the future to allow the cars to detect other things that have V2X on them. Um, but it's fundamentally, um, I think they're trying to retrofit a technology which is too expensive for bikes. Um, and as you say, we'll end up only in the most expensive bikes because it's a, it's an expensive chipset. It requires a lot of energy, which in turn needs a big battery. Um, and so it'll tend towards high-end e-bikes and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, there are cheaper technologies out there, but it would require more, more money being invested into the car, uh, which again changes the economic value. So the, the thing that I think is quite good and I'm actually reasonably excited about is... Um, the likes of Euro NCAP and, and the Australian equivalent NCAP. And since 2010, sorry, 2020, um, they've had tests around autonomous braking and detection of cyclists. Um, mm. Most recently in 2023, both of them have announced that um, Doring or prevention of Doring is part of their scoring system as well. Um, and that's kind of interesting because although these tests are you know, independent of the car manufacturer, um, they do kind of... Uh, react or, or I guess are set up as a result of things that are um, present in the cars. So for example, the Doring, um, one of the first cars that was available to do that was the Audi A4 back in 2016. So, you know, getting on for seven-year-old technology. And indeed, I believe that uses very similar technology to the Garmin Varia um, of a radar-based system looking behind to look for bicycles. So it is possible to do this stuff without needing um, you know, really expensive V2X technologies that, that is being um, proposed. Um, I, I guess on the flip side, to, to be fully, um, I guess, cognizant of all the different factors, um, you could argue that um, how well do these systems work in the real world? The, you know, they certainly work well in testing, and a lot of cars do pass um, the, the standards for the test. Um, but we know from emissions regulations in the past that it is possible to set up a car to do a very specific thing and in the real world it might not behave exactly the same way. So given that the car manufacturer is saying it's really hard to detect a bike, but the cars are passing these Euro NCAP standards, um, I think we probably need something more, more like we have in air traffic control. So my, my first job was in ATC and if there's a crash with an aircraft, it gets independently investigated um, a report's published and everybody learns from that. Um, of course, that doesn't happen with cars. And, you know, if a car uh, has a, a collision, uh, well, I should say if a car, if there's a collision, not necessarily the car's fault, unless it's self-driving, of course. Um, but where does that information go? You know, at best, back to the manufacturer to improve their own system. Mm. So, um, you know, how do we get some of that knowledge and spread it around the car industry so that everybody can learn from it as well? We're talking about data here. And if, if you've got a company that is now more data than it is just pure just uh, physical product lights um, even though your chips are, are are being used presumably that means it's been easier for you to make this decision to move you and your family uh, and set up a sales office in in australia because you're not 
really doing physical distribution of products if you're doing data? We we do still have a reliance on the technology. So um, a lot of what we do in our secret sauce is around the processing we do on the devices, um, which is unique to us and gives us so much data, uh, much deeper, richer insights than would otherwise be available. Um, the, the fortunate thing, I guess, with our technology is it is relatively small. Um, you know, we can take a box of 100 or, or 200 lights and send them to wherever we need to anywhere in the world. Um, we're very fortunate as well that because it tends to be viewed as safety technology, it tends to be free from um, duty and import taxes, which um, mm -hmm. can slow things down and complicate the processes. So actually, we've while we do have a reliance on some logistics, um, it's perhaps not as challenging as some other companies that has allowed us to to work around it relatively easily. So after I'm going to cut to a commercial break now with my colleague David, but after the break, I'd very much like to uh, talk about logistically how you're going to do it, and then I'd like to bring Irene again and 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 talk about um, her role in the industry and and how maybe she's going to uh, replicate that in Australia. But first of all, let's go across to to, to David in America. This podcast is brought to you by Turn Bicycles. The good people at Turn understand that while a large cargo bike can carry oodles of stuff, many of us prefer something, well, a little more manageable. That's why they've come up with the HSDE cargo bike for folks with big aspirations to go car-free delivered in a compact size. With its rear shock to 80 kilos and a combined hauling capacity of 180 kilos, the robust new HSD is stable and easy to maneuver, even when under load. And with its Bosch e-bike system tested and certified to meet the highest UL standards for electric and fire safety, you'll be able to share many worry-free adventures with a loved one, whether it's your kiddo or nan. Visit www.turnbicycles, that's T-E-R-N, turnbicycles.com to learn more. Uh, so thanks, David, uh, in America there. But we're not talking about America. We're talking about Australia uh, with uh, Irene and uh, Philip McAleese. So tell me exactly how you've embedded yourself very successfully in the industry across here in, in Europe, um, specifically cycling industries Europe. So tell me about the role on, on, on the board. Maybe start by telling us what cycling industries Europe is. So... Cycling Industry Europe is the, is the industry group which has been set up to um, advocate for industry, but also really recognising that um, you know, there's a lot of work actually done to sort of advocate for investment in cycling infrastructure because most of the cycling um, brands recognise that more investment in that helps to get more people on bikes, which ultimately helps all of the brands so it's not just bike brands, actually, over the years. It's, it's, it's sort of broadened out. So the whole remit of the cycling industry is company like ours, which are offering you know, um, accessories and data and, and services. There's also you know, other companies looking at maintenance, a whole range of different kind of support industries as well that sit around the main bike sales. Um, it's actually an offshoot of the European cycling federation ecf so years ago it was part of that and and then it, it sort of split out from that but actually provides a lot of funding and support um back to the ecf um i did uh, we were actually proud to be a member of 
the ECF or the um, the CIE back when it was still part of the ECF actually and um, one of the reasons I joined at the time was because I came across Kevin Main. Actually, it was through one of the articles that you had written, Carlton, where I'd seen that. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I met Kevin, I, I met Kevin at the first Velo City I attended in Taipei, and I was blown away because he he was such an inspiring guy, and he really understood. When I said to him, you know, this is back in 2016, I think it was, that we were looking at cycling data, we wanted to um, look at shaping cities with data. I mean, I think in a lot of areas of the cycling world, we may have seemed a little bit alien um, and a little maybe ahead of our time in some ways, but Kevin, he really saw, he actually had that vision as well. He really saw that that data was going to become more and more important and digitalization of the cycling industry would be more and more important. Um, the main thing that he saw, and I think he's completely right, was that, you know, cities are using data anyway. They use data from cars. They use data from other modes. And cycling had really been the kind of Cinderella in the ball. There was little data coming from cycling. And therefore, if cities don't have much data, how do they design their cities to accommodate it? So he really saw that. You, you, you treasure what you measure, basically. Yes, yes, exactly. So, um, uh yeah, I, I, I really found it great to, to work with CIE at that point because they, they helped us, um, you know, um, shape some of our vision as well as we went along. We're a very um, collaborative kind of company. I've learned a lot from talking with them. And um, they also set up within their organisation a, a cycling, um, connected cycling and ITS network group so other like-minded companies can come together and we can work on um, things for the industry, such as standards and and things like that, which which help to, um, you know, it's a little bit of grunge work really behind the scenes to to try to facilitate things and make sure that we can put in place things that are actually going to help grow the market for everyone. Um, then I was invited to um, participate in the board. They put out a call actually because the CIE's board had been all male. Uh, mm-hmm. and they put out a call saying that they wanted to invite um, more women onto the board, and um, I decided to throw my hat in the ring for that, and I was very pleased to be um, selected. I did a two-year stint on the board. I think it was just over two years. Um, once Brexit came along, I, I did sort of kind of step back a little bit because a part of the reason of CIE is really about advocating for funding at the EU level. Um, so and they've been mm-hmm. tremendously successful at that actually in things like the, the Green Deal and, and getting it, the European Cycling Declaration signed off recently. Um, of course, unfortunately, here in um, Northern Ireland as part of the UK, that, those, that funding pot doesn't trickle down to us anymore. Um, so I, I couldn't justify, you know, so much of my time going to CIE and and the, actually, the flight or the trip to Brussels is actually quite uh, quite a long journey here from Northern Ireland, so it would take quite a lot of time. But I, I am still quite involved in the the cycling expert groups online and participating more in the working hands-on stuff. So I, I learned a lot actually by being the only woman on the board. There are really big companies there: um, Trek, mm-hmm. Excel. Um, at the time, they had. Um, 
sort of Uber with their bikes, share fleets and different companies like this on the board. So we, I guess we're a little bit different. A, we're a small company. B, we were a company working at the edge of innovation on data and technology and C, being a woman. So I definitely bought a perspective, different perspective across all three of those areas. Um, but, yeah, fantastic experience. Um, and- there, is a, there is also a slight link with Kevin in that he's from New Zealand originally. Yes. So during that, some of that get up and go, you're talking about some of that awareness of other issues potentially came from the fact that he wasn't born and bred uh, in Europe. He had maybe a, a different skill set, a different perspective because he did come from from New Zealand. I thought he was actually English and his wife is from New Zealand. I could be wrong. Really? Oh. I will. I will. <laughs> Carry on talking. I'll Google that because I'm, I'm I'm pretty sure he's New Zealand. But carry on. Let's 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 talk about different things while I while I while I Google that in the meantime. Okay. I could be wrong. You, you could be right. I mean, I could be like, I could be giving him an international perspective there where there is. Yeah, no, I, mean, I know. I know he met. I know he met his wife in when he went on a trip to Australia. I think and, she, and for work because he he used to work for a. Uh, was it a drinks cup, some sort of drinks company, something? Um, yeah, you might have to slice this bit out, Kevin <laughs> Carlton. But yeah, I, I think I think he's English. I haven't spoken to him when he was English, but um, but yeah, he does have a lot of get up and go. And actually, um, you know, I've always thought that um, he, you know, is kind of funny to have. Kevin, who I thought was from the UK, heading up. You know, he was obviously Cycling UK's um, CEO at one point. Um, and then he's there um, heavily involved in the whole European cycling context, um, who would be more traditionally known for cycling. So it's good to have fresh voices around around the table. Well, he lives in Brussels now, yes. of course. Yes. And, uh, I mean, Brussels, we were talking there about Brexit and, and and the fact that you had to like maybe come out a little bit and and I, I I'm kind of I've done the same thing even though I, I try to be as much as a good European as possible but when I get the press releases from the European Cyclist Federation you know about the Green New Deal and about you know all of these yeah. things it's like it's wonderful but what does it really mean to yeah well to us in the UK the day that the European um cycling declaration was announced the same day it was mm. announced in the UK the plan for driving was announced mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so you know the disparity between these two situations is so stark um and it's at this point I actually joined you know I've joined now the bicycle association here in the UK um, and I've also joined the board um as a as a board advisor for diversity um, so the Bicycle Association here. So I've really been trying to sort of um, impact that way um, more locally here mm. over the last year, which I've really enjoyed. And actually the Bicycle Association are doing some really great work now um, looking at, you know, broad, I think they've really evolved and are really much more, uh, you know, they're getting really into advocacy, you know, lobbying the government for funds and investment to fill some of the gaps have been left, I think, from um, the the exit from EU. So, um, and, you know, so I'm, I'm excited to see where they go with that 
Now, technically, if if you are to believe the the the, the Brexit crowd, we're actually going to be having closer ties with Australia, and we're certainly going to be having the beef and stuff um, from the Antipodes. So, do you envisage actually the potentially some benefits to Brexit? Could we could we have found some benefits that you, you might actually find that operating a business in Australia and having it in you know uh-huh. other, other part of it in being in Northern, it's actually easier now after Brexit. Yeah, there is a free trade agreement in place, but I think as Philip said, we were already exempt um, for um, the the tariff for importing of the bike lights. Um, but one, I mean, one thing will be useful is ensuring um, parity on the um, data privacy work. So at the moment, you know, historically we've been part of GDPR, and you want uh, which is at the European level and we we don't want the UK to diverge too much from that because it's really seen as the gold standard um, worldwide around data privacy and we've worked really hard to ensure we're compliant with that Um, but I think as long if we if we have Australia and the UK um, broadly aligned with those in that perspective I think that will be really useful Um, Mm. we have good dialogue around that um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's obviously a um, a historical link between the two the two countries, and um, yeah, there is the free trade agreement. I, I guess we need to get to Australia and explore a little more about what that would actually mean for us um, mm. at this point. But I've just been searching for for Kevin. I can't see anything from his <laughs> background, but I'm, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> He's uh, he's from New Zealand. Oh. Even though I can't find that, I'm, I'm pretty sure. But looking at the board of directors for Cycling Industries Europe, there's now three women yeah. on on the board. Yeah. So you 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 basically you pioneered that. But there are now three women. Yeah. So April Marsh, Anna Bookman, and Isabel Ebeline. So that's you've you've opened the door. You you broke through that glass <laughs> ceiling. I mean. Yes, yeah, and it's really fantastic to see. In fact, I think that they had. This year, a competitive, very competitive um, selection because there were even some more women that wanted that, that were in the final list. And I think they had, you know, just overall the board was very competitive in terms of getting in this year. So it's really great to see those women were selected on their merit and, and brought in on that basis. And it's no longer the, the organisation. I mean, when it started, it was almost just Kevin himself. It, it, there's now quite a few people beneath it. So it's, it's a growing organisation. Cycling Industries Europe. Yeah, I think they're doing really well. Um, um, you know, there are all these, I think that one of the keys has been the working groups um, because something that Kevin said is that this really gives a lot of um, credence to the EU when they talk about how they actively engage all of the, the different industry players, uh, members, um, through through these working groups and how you know different suggestions and things are brought forward it has it does carry more weight so i think that it's been a clever strategy on the part of the cie to to have you know such great engagement with the members um and then also to have a really good team like laura who's in the team um she's fantastic in being able to you know her understanding of how the whole eu um kind of lobbying um, machinations work um, is phenomenal and that's really needed because you, know, you look at 
you know, she was telling me, like, you think about the car industry and other industries, they have just whole teams of people mm. that are 100% devoted to lobbying, you know, the EU mm -hmm. get through their agenda. Um, and yes. they are really awake to that. Um, and they, you know, they see the opportunity for really talking up things like, you know, the impact on the economy. That's been the key thing. We're mm -hmm. providing jobs. We're providing, you know, we. It's a green growth industry, and really getting that that message across is, I think, being you know one of their strengths, um, and getting cycling seen as another form of transport, not just a lesser form. You know, really bringing it up to the table. That's what part of that EU cycling declaration is about. Um, but yeah, combination of good understanding of lobbying and better than conversely really working well with the industry members and and bringing forward to the table ideas that have been shaped by the community um, so i think that's how they're doing it so i think yeah kevin is a really great leader in that respect for pulling it together but he does have a good team behind him how are you going to be organizing the team that's going to be you know, operating your business in, in Northern Ireland and and how you're going to be doing it remotely, perhaps, or or, or not. Maybe it's all going to be completely self-running. So so logistically, how are you going to have a, a, a how are you going to run a business from Australia? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, um, I I worked in Singapore for a period, so I was very used to the um, the routine of being um, you know, comparatively quiet and able to get some strategic work done in the morning. Um, and then London's um, started day happening and, and coming online and creating a busy afternoon. So it's kind of an extension of that where um, I guess COVID was a good trial for our uh, processes to begin with. We all had laptops. Um, all of our work is done in the cloud with very secure storage. Um, and so we were able to disperse to our various homes and continue to work in a relatively straightforward and easy way. So. We've only really come back to a hybrid working model where people are in the office typically one day per week, um, and it varies depending on the individual. Um, and so we're already operating in, a, in an environment where we're not seeing everybody face-to-face -face every day. So I think whether or not we're in a, mm. uh, our home or in a coffee shop in Brisbane, um, or indeed at home, a coffee shop in Newton Arts or in our office in Newton Arts, will make comparatively little difference to the overall operation of the business. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously, the time zones are a bit of a challenge. We'll, we'll definitely be doing uh, meetings early in the morning and late at night, um, more than we perhaps would like to, but that, that's, the, I guess, the cost of doing it. And we've got a very strong team here, so we're very confident that um, they'll continue to operate very effectively um, without having us to, to be in the same time zone as them. And Carlton, we have really, you know, my previous life now, which is now quite a while ago, um, that was really my, my background was actually human resource management, change management, um, change management um, advisor. Um, and so, what some of the some of the things that I learned from that experience, we tried to bring into CSense. So we, we do we run we run CSense in a in a way where we're very values led. Um, so we, we do invest in really as much as we can with our people trying to help them you know, starting from the top is you know our mission and our vision what we're trying to achieve and helping people see what they do on a day-to-day -day basis really aligns with that so that comes through from how we recruit people to how we do our performance management and development 
We have like quarterly team events, which we'll continue to do where we get everyone together face to face and we have like bottom up and get, you know, bottom up um, engagement in developing our, you know, our OKRs, our objectives and key results for the next quarter. So we've got some really nice kind of processes in place that help all feel um, engaged and part of the process and that they've got, you know, good mechanisms for communication and, and that kind of stuff as well. So it's not just, yeah, you've got your laptop and you're on your own. <laughs> uh, you know, we really do put a lot of work into um, managing all of that, the glue that brings people together. It's going to be a challenge, absolutely. Um, I'm sure we'll have some teething issues as we as we land in Australia working it out, but I, I genuinely think it's not insurmountable. We've got a couple of team members at the moment, one one based in Wales actually, our new biz dev manager, Craig Brew, and we have Becky um, Marsden in, in Birmingham. Um, the rest of the team here in Northern Ireland are actually a bit dispersed over Northern Ireland, some in one guys in, in Derry, one's in, in Enniskillen, a uh, couple in, down in Enniskillen actually. So we're, we're kind of a bit dispersed anyway and it's it's working. So it's just getting a bit more extreme in the disbursement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so not just a, a 20 miles apart. You're going to be quite a few thousand miles yeah. apart. But, yeah, that's right. I mean, you, you can run a business uh, from wherever you are in the world, I guess. If, 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 the way we have now seemed to have landed after COVID in, in, in everybody now knows how to use Teams or most people knows how to use Teams and all the different sharing platforms. So you, you've kind of, we, we, we kind of, we, we're not used to these things. You, you can now run a business. No, nobody will think it completely odd. Remember 10 years ago, that would have been completely alien. Now it's like, oh, of course you can run a business from Australia. You're just on Skype all the time. Or their Skype equivalents yeah. now. I, know, I do have. worry though, because you know I've been well the last the last fortnight I've kind of done this really condensed, almost it feels like my swan song. I've been to all these conferences trying to see people face to face, taking little mm. selfies with them and stuff, because there is something mm. really wonderful about that face to face experience. Um and seeing, you know, I you know, I, I think that that is really important and I, I worry a bit about that. Obviously, you're not going to be able to do that as much. Um, having said that, there's some key events I, I would likely see. I would try to make things like the Velo City, for example, where lots of like-minded people come together. Mm. I think next year's in Brew. Ghent. Yeah, Ghent. So, yes, Ghent. So I'm sort of, that, that would be definitely the penciled in and... Um, we, we have Phil's um, family still here in Northern Ireland, so we expect to be back for that um, as well, Christmas time. So we, we you know, we will try to um, make the most of any trip that we have back and and connect with people face-to-face where we can because mm-hmm. um, it's really important. Actually, I haven't seen you face-to-face for a while, Carlton, so maybe the next Velocity. Yes, yes. Because Velocity does travel the world. So, you know, it has been in, in, in Australia before. And as you mentioned before, you know, it's been in Taipei. There was a there was a there was a version of yes. it across there. So you just got to wait for it to come to Australia again. Yeah, I heard that they were I heard they were trying to or they were thinking about getting one in Australia soon. But I don't know if that's going to come off. Well, it's been fascinating to talk to you. Thank you very much for, for, for taking the time, Philip and Irene. I wish you all the best. 
Uh, how long you got left in the UK? And are you finished? Are you like, are you wrapped up with things? Oh my God, no. <laughs> no we are literally working right up until the day we go, Carlton. Um, 4th of December is the day we get on the plane. Um, I'm actually going to London this afternoon. I've got a really exciting workshop we're doing in London tomorrow where we're getting all of our, well, not all, but many of our key clients together, plus some very interesting thought leaders, Professor John Parkin being one of them. Um, mm -hmm. We're going to be brainstorming together how we can use AI and machine learning on CSense data to um, develop out in the next phase of our dashboard, which is a super exciting project. Um, so that's, ha mm -hmm. that's happening tomorrow in London. Um, and then um, there's, there's lots of stuff really going on right up until we go. Um, so yeah, never, never a dull moment. <laughs> no. Uh, well, I wish you all the best, both of you. And I, I can pretty much guarantee I will be still talking to you. And we don't have to meet in the flesh for us to for, yeah. for us to talk because uh -huh. we, we, we you know I think it was at the, the the London Move conference when we talked to you last, but that was only that was only February, wasn't it? So that wasn't that long ago. Oh, that was just Philip, actually. I think that was just Philip, wasn't it, Irene? You weren't there at that one. I saw Philip. Right. So 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 best of British, best of luck across in Australia, and uh, I will be talking to you when you're in Australia. We'll just be on a different time zone, that's all. Thanks to Mr. and Mrs. McAleese there, and thanks to you for listening to episode 343 of the Spokesman Podcast, brought to you in association, as always, with Turn Bicycles. Show notes and more can be found at the-spokesman.com. The next episode should be the fourth dedicated to cycle navigation apps as I talk to Kamut. That show will be out next month. But meanwhile, get out there and ride. Yeah, and I yes. wonder, Carlton, if my accent is going to change. Philip says it changes as soon as I hit the hit the tarmac and then I go full Aussie. So you will be able to tell me if I get better at using yeah. data data. Well you've been here you've been here twenty years, but you haven't lot I mean, I'm sure people in Australia think you've you're you're completely Northern Irish with your accent. But we we I I can certainly tell that you're Australian. Uh, with your accents you haven't lost that but yeah I'm sure you'll be even broader um, once you've lived there for a bit yeah you have scarred me though because I was presenting last week in um, <laughs> presenting last week in the Manchester conference and I actually heard myself say data and data in the same sentence as I was presenting Whoa. I actually laughed and said Oh my God, I've just done what Carlton Reed told me to do. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, yeah, so um, so funny. Thank you. It'll be, well, what'll be interesting is how what Philip says. Will he change? Oh, my goodness. Will yeah. you have an Australian accent, Philip? It's a good question. I mean, I did spend um, 10 years working in London. Um, I did learn to speak a bit more clearly and a bit more slowly <laughs> than the average Northern Irish person, perhaps. But, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. And your kids, what do they speak? What language do they speak? So our, they're, they're in I. Yeah, yeah, they're pretty yeah. Good. They're very good at doing accents, though. So it'll be interesting to see um, how quickly they morph and how that changes. Twelve and fourteen, I mm. should imagine, pretty quick. Yeah, mm. pretty quick. Oh, my kids, my kids are bilingual, so <laughs> certainly uh, one of my daughters is uh, very broad, Geordie, when oh. she's with her friends, mm-hmm. but if she's in a professional. Uh, setting can quickly switch to to uh, the received pronunciation right. shall she, we say she, um, did i see online she she um got into medicine or she graduated in medicine that's my other daughter oh okay. twin daughters you got twins. and uh, uh yes and and they uh chalk and cheese uh the doctor daughter has yep. always spoke with an english accent only Okay. Uh, whereas my footballer daughter, uh, <laughs> my fitness freak daughter, because she had footballing friends, yes. she would then, and, and, and she still, when she goes to the Newcastle matches, she will speak incredibly broad Geordie with <laughs> them and then English <laughs> with, with other people. So, well, yeah, I mean, your kids are going to get the best of both worlds. You're going to be speaking probably uh, one, one accent with one set of people. Maybe yeah. at home, and then it, it, very quickly, a completely Aussie twang. That that yeah. probably happens. In but that you know, yeah. I told you, Carlton, that my grandparents are Geordies. Were, were Geordies? Oh, yes. I, I think you? I remember. Yes. 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 So yeah. they they emigrated to Australia in the fifties. Um, so I grew up with the Geordie accent, um, and they my my grandmother she still had she lived in Australia since nineteen fifty. One, I think they arrived, and she passed away. She she still had a twang, a little bit of the Geordie accent there. So mm. Um, mm. it's always I don't know I, I because it's the because it's the accent of my grandparents. It's, it's etched in my brain, and it's a, it's a comforting and nice quality to it to me. 